Part five, everybody. We are still here, and you are still here, surprisingly enough. It's part five of the series, so I'd like to give a little shout-out to some other well-known part fives that have made it that far. We got Rocky Five, which is um, sort of forgotten Rocky movie where he fights a street fighter before the Balboa reboot into the Creed movies. It was sort of a grittier Rocky as opposed to the part four where Rocky has a robot. That Rocky is 24 minutes of montage, and I think it has like a runtime of 81 minutes. It's the best Rocky movie. Four, yeah, it is. Yeah, four, obviously. And then there's Death Wish 5, which, you know, that was the last one, and it's hard to think Charles Bronson hadn't killed literally everyone in New York City by that point. And there's Friday the 13th, part five, when ironically part four was also called the final chapter. So that was a lie. When we do our final chapter on denim, don't worry, we won't fool you. Like the Friday the 13th franchise, we will actually end it. I think is like, I have no idea how many parts this is going to be, but uh, a lot more than the initial outline, which I very foolishly thought we could get through in these five episodes total. And there's still like 130 years to cover. So planning and just keeping nailing boards in front of ourselves, you know, like Wile E. Coyote or the writers in the Lost TV show until it's done. So we're back at Blowout. My name is David. I'm Reed. And we're discussing the history of denim in an obscene number of parts. So where did we leave off? Levi Strauss & Co. had monopolized the gold miner work pant market in the San Francisco area since 1873 because they and they alone had the exclusive patent on putting rivets on fabrics, which... I know we spent a lot of time in the last episode talking about patents, but in retrospect, it kind of seems a little bit bullshit to be able to patent putting rivets on fabric. And like rivets were widely available as were duck canvas and denim and combining the two was a new thing. But like if I was the first person to use a stapler to keep a crease in a hat brim, is that really deserving of a patent? But did you staple it in the usual way? (sighs) I did not do it in the usual way. Then it's probably not deserving of a patent because they did it in the usual way. Very good callback, you know, and they they had to reference that boot patent. But still, I mean, I guess the inventor deserves some sort of financial compensation, but it just seems to artificially inhibit progress because, you know, all the other companies had to develop a bunch of weird fabric and leather contraptions to try to compete until 1890 when that patent expired and suddenly everyone could rivet again. And everyone did. But... Before we get to that point, you know, we're going to do the usual thing that we do on this show where it is uh, two historical steps forward and one back. And we are going to go back to 1869, Promontory Summit, Utah, where Leland Stanford, the former governor of California, hammered a golden spike with a silver hammer into two separate rail lines, marking the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. That's a big deal in Utah. I've been to the Golden Spike. Really? Apparently, it's not still there. They yanked it out and replaced it with a steel spike. You yeah, know, they got it on display. Bunch of cheapskates there. I I assume steel's stronger, so uh, I don't like condemn them for it. But yeah, in Utah, that definitely qualifies as an attraction, not for tourists, just an attraction. It's in the middle of nowhere. Like I, I don't know many railroad heads who would take that trip, but I would probably take that trip. You're a railroad head. 
Actually, I went through that place when I took the train from San Francisco to Denver last summer. I was probably asleep because like the train gets to Salt Lake City at like 1.30 in the morning. It's not an exceedingly populated area. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's it's like very much like a, it, it looks like something called Promontory Point. Mm-hmm. It's a very arbitrary spot. Is like this is where uh, the is the result of a 1862 federal decree that was at the time probably about as ambitious as the Manhattan Project or going to the moon, where over six years nearly thirty thousand people built like one thousand nine hundred and twelve miles of railroad track that went from Omaha, Nebraska to the San Francisco Bay. Um, and the, uh, I spent about like $60 million at the time, which was like roughly equivalent to $1.2 billion with inflation. It's like one, it's like one third of a, of a fighter jet. Yeah. It's uh, if you want to just scrape a F-35 across the Western half of the United States, you could get a transcontinental railroad build. Isn't that wild? Over half the people that built it were Chinese, and the working conditions that they endured were pretty much inhuman. And then they got the Chinese Exclusion Act to thank them for it. The uh, Central Pacific was the company that built from Sacramento East, and the Union Pacific was building from uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa West. So it was sort of like a John Henry type thing of these two companies competing. And they end up meeting up in uh, Promontory Point. But... um, uh, oddly enough, as in most early histories or uh, just pretty much all histories of public building, the like graft and corruption was pretty insane on the railroad that uh, the uh, Union Pacific boss, like they got paid by the mile. So he just made the track like really long and windy to like build as many miles as they possibly could before they reached the end. But even still, the like... Uh, Transcontinental Railroad was sort of hard to overstate its importance for the growth of the American West. Um, Because as we talked about before, it was like sort of a moon base that was out on like San Francisco in the like mid 1800s that it would take like either six weeks to take a boat from the East Coast, like uh, down across the Panama Canal, like uh, Panama Isthmus, you had to get out and walk across because there wasn't a Panama Canal yet. Or it would take six months to go around the southern tip of South America. Whereas with the Transcontinental Railroad, you could go from New York to San Francisco in just a week. So this is just like a really game-changing thing to have happened to like send people and freight and ideas and just everything back and forth at a rate that could never have happened beforehand. Like freight and other goods travel the lines like $50 million did annually, which is again about a billion dollars adjusted for inflation, which is just sort of a testament to the benefit of public investment and in infrastructure like this, that something like this could happen and make the country grow so much more quickly than it otherwise was able to. Whether that growth was a good thing was debatable, but it did make it much easier for Levi Strauss to get the double X denim for their jeans from the Amoskeg mill in New Hampshire to their factories selling denim in uh, San Francisco. Before the railroad, the West still had an almost like colonial relationship with the East, that there were such a small number of people out West that raw materials like primarily gold and other precious metals that were extracted from the West and sent East in exchange for finished goods. Um, Sort of like the relationship that um, the American colonies had with the British mother country that we talked about a couple episodes ago. And this is sort of 
obvious like that industry was super primitive that you couldn't get things like a pot-bellied stove or a steam engine made in San Francisco in the mid 1800s is like this is uh, I guess really easily illustrated by the fact that the most famous technological advancement is some guy riveting metal onto pants pockets. I mean, it seems big in, in the context of our show. It's very big in the context of our show, but I mean, it's a uh, sort of like the advancement of like one guy being able to make a sandwich for the first time. It's a very, very big deal, but it's not something that you need a lot of infrastructure to be able to do. You just have to, you know, think a little bit differently. That's fair. I see your point. So, like the railroad brought a huge number of people west. And the population of San Francisco went from like 56,000 in 1860 to nearly 300,000 in 1890. And because it was connected from the railroad and there was a reason for people to go out there because of the gold rush, it sort of became the hub for everything west of the Mississippi United States. And this created a critical mass of people where it makes much more sense to develop that industry to produce the things they needed out there rather than import them from the east. So you had all these like new uh, industrial manufacturing centers popping up, like brickyards, iron mills, and steel factories, slaughterhouses, shipyards, things that they would have just you know said like, "Well, fuck it, it's too expensive. We'll just pay to have it shipped." They were now making for themselves over there. And relevantly to our show, a lot of the workers in these San Francisco factories started wearing denim as their work clothing because it was equally suited to do their jobs as it was to mining. There's still no fabric production in San Francisco ever because uh, it wouldn't make sense to ship all of the cotton that was grown in the southern United States out to San Francisco just to make pants out of it when it would make a lot more sense to just have it go up, especially to New England where there was power based on um, water wheels and the rivers that were there uh, because electricity wasn't widespread enough to power the looms yet. Hence all those mill towns that are in New England. Yeah, San Francisco's primary form of power at that time was arson, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, just lighting things on fire was how they illuminated the streets. Yeah, arson heats the water, which makes steam, which turns the turbine, which uh, powers more arson. It's a, it's a wonderful cycle. Though, <laughs> <laughs> so, where does that put denim? That uh, we've got San Francisco that started to become like a much bigger, more influential city out west that can actually sort of fend for itself. Well, we will explain how that develops shortly after this break. Attention, blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle Shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. So we're back and ready to talk about the birth of regional jeans. It's important to note how insular and regionally specific all these denim developments up to this point are. It's like, while the railroad made moving things back and forth across the country much easier, it was still far too expensive to ship anything that wasn't expensive enough or perishable enough to be worth it. It's like all of these developments that we've talked about uh, in the last episode about what's happening in San Francisco and the mining communities, they're very regionally like located in the San Francisco area. Most people had no idea that these riveted denim waist overalls even existed because it had no relevance to their lives. Or if it was, it was too far away that like no one was going to import 
any Levi's jeans like across the country so they could work in a factory wearing them. Do you think people, when they saw them, were like the first time I ever saw a Fiat? And I was like, I know what this is. Like, it's a car, but I, I didn't know there was a popular car brand that I was unaware of. Perhaps, you know, that it was the, the things that people just went totally nuts over that invaded their town. Yeah, like the first time Mark Twain showed up in San Francisco and wears, was wearing a suit, and he's like, why is everyone wearing blue pants? Mm-hmm. I guess they wouldn't be blue for that long, though, huh? They probably no. just look like shitty and brown real quick. And most people were just wearing them as work pants. Like you didn't see people on the street unless they were like, you know, it was the equivalent of seeing someone in like a construction worker's outfit of like a hard hat and a like yellow vest type thing. A lot of miners didn't have much distinction. Like they didn't even have places to sleep. So I imagine Mm -hmm. they'd be wearing them, right? Or they're just like running around in long johns. No, they had like other pants or a lot of them like didn't have other things to go into the city. There was a, uh, Interesting pair, though, that um, Britt Eaton, uh, one of these denim mine divers uh, that are like the most fascinating people, I think, in our industry. He showed me a pair of pants that he dug up that were pinstripe jeans that uh, someone had like dyed, you know, like a Wabash like pinstripe on the pants. So they looked like fancy suit pants, but they were denim. So you could wear them like in a mine and you could also wear them like out to dinner, supposedly. This was at least his read on them, and they did a repro of them with blue blanket uh, jeans that were they were pretty cool. The thing that you wouldn't necessarily see them all that much, because um, yeah, it was just like such a uh, work specific piece of equipment. Is the my understanding of how they were perceived back then? It'd be like wearing safety goggles out to the bar. So yeah, sort of like that. Or like a, a hard hat or like steel toes or something like that. It's like, yeah, I was going to go with a baseball hat, but I feel like this is this more my look today. It's on you got to accessorize. I mean, safety goggles might not be a bad move if you're going to a bar right now. Right now, yeah. I mean, just don't go to a bar. I mean, go outside, I guess. But um, depending on what state you're in, I don't, I'm not giving instructions on that. I am not <laughs> We are not legally responsible for your health and wearing safety goggles to bars. Just wear a mask, please. But back to pants. So like the Levi's jeans and like all these riveted waist overalls and work pants that were being created in uh, on the West Coast like might have been the best development in work pant technology at the time, but the economics of it didn't make sense for those to be exported to many other markets uh, like outside of the mining and like San Francisco like working person community. But... This is one of the things that the railroad sort of helped with because railroad workers really liked them and people on the railroad were traveling all over the country and were seen because they were wearing those jeans and like coveralls and like denim jackets and things while they were working in the steam locomotives, which was dirty, hard manual labor. Uh, So that helped spread the idea of denim like just as much as, uh, you know, anything happening regionally in San Francisco. So the news of the utility of jeans did travel, but it wasn't something that, you know, anyone was paying to have imported from far and wide. And because regional distribution didn't work nearly as well out the New West as it did in other areas, so Levi's didn't cover that much more territory than what was in the immediate vicinity of San Francisco, like Reno, um, you know, and maybe the, the southern parts of the Pacific Northwest. And it didn't make any sense, you know, to send the fabric from the East Coast to the West Coast 
for it to get made into jeans and then back to the East Coast for people to wear them. So a lot of regionally specific denim makers popped up in different markets all throughout the United States. Um, say, for example, the Stronghold was one uh, that was founded in 1895 in Los Angeles and became the regional denim brand of Southern California. As such, they became the default pant that you see in most of Hollywood movies that feature jeans. Those were likely Strongholds, uh, including Charlie Chaplin's overalls in modern times. Strongholds are great. What was the one from last time, Boss of the Road? Boss of the Road. Another Boss San Francisco one. Yeah, Boss the Road and the Stronghold are pretty good. Like they're both better than Green Bomb. B and O Green Bomb. <laughs> B O Green Bomb. Like good people. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. It's just those. Those are solid names. Like I feel like those could be on the racks of, of Selfage at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Stronghold was revived, and you can still buy a pair of Stronghold jeans. That there's a. Uh, are they good? Uh, there's a store out in Venice Beach. Yeah, they're pretty good. That they uh, do all the things right. They're still made in L.A that they're uh, very much in the niche pedals universe. What what's their their sort of identifier like their their distinguishing factor? The the guy that uh runs the brand now, like that revived it, Michael Paradise, another great name. It's a great name. That uh it was like a made to order thing for a while that a lot of celebrities bought their jeans cuz like they were on Abbott Kinney or they they're still on Abbott Kinney. And uh, I think a lot of celebrities still buy their jeans that they have this like big binder full of uh, pictures of all these celebs that have bought their jeans. And like the one that I was like hung up on the most when I was flipping through it a few years ago was Billy Zane apparently buys so many jeans from the stronghold. (laughs) Billy Zane, huh? Yeah, Billy Zane. Titanic's own? Uh Uh-huh. Classic American heartthrob. Billy Zane. And the Phantom, if you remember that movie, Phantom, he was bombing Phantoms, yo. Uh, uh, also played himself in Zoolander. Yeah, very true. Uh, it, um, yeah, it makes sense for that. Is like the because the stronghold was in uh, L.A. in the early days of the movie industry. Like those were the jeans that you saw on screen, like more often than not. Uh, it was one of the smaller boys that you know, like in many industries, have a big three. And we got, you know, like uh, GM, Ford, and Chrysler in cars. You got ABC, CBS, NBC in television. You got Pizza Hut, Domino's, and Papa John's in American pizza. Papa Murphy's is just like, what do we have to do? Is there Papa Murphy's outside of the West Coast or like the Western United States? I'll be honest. I don't really know. Uh, Papa Murphy's Take and Bake. It's It's a free ad. Little Caesars is definitely nationwide. Oh, yeah. The Hot and Ready. It's the hot ready. Now I think they put bacon on the crust. God bless them. There's nothing too low for Little Caesars. They're just like they're like I don't know. What if we wrapped it in bacon? <laughs> but for denim, big three is Levi's, Lee, and Wrangler. Wrangler slash Bluebell. Um, so let's give a finish out here. Do a quick background on those guys. So the simplified version is that. Levi's had dominance in most of the Western U.S. Lee was in the Midwest in Kansas, and Bluebell was on the East Coast in North Carolina. Lee Jeans, which was founded in Salinas, Kansas by one Henry David Lee, was a Vermont-born Yankee that moved west because he had tuberculosis, and his doctor told him to seek a drier climate, so he moved to the middle of Kansas. That was when medicine was like, hey, you have a terminal illness, just like, I don't know, travel 800 miles. 
Just, just get like, out of here. That's our medicine. Our medicine, it's just like, they're like, is there something I can take? It's like, yeah, you can take a, a cart. I wonder if that was the thing that they did just to get rid of patients that they didn't like. That were like, you know, the hypochondriacs that came in every other week and they're like, oh no, you have to move, you know, a thousand miles away. So you go to the pharmacy, it's like, oh no, there's no prescription. They, they've prescribed you to move. Mm-hmm. They want you to see a new doctor. Yeah, hopefully insurance will cover that move. No, I like. I, they're always like, "Yes, uh, my doctor told me it was to get fresh air." It's not because you have a wildly contagious disease, and they want you out of the immediate <laughs> surrounding areas of other people. They <laughs> want you to spread it far and wide across the these Western United States. Yeah, no, I would rather. <laughs> I would rather get fresh air in the mountains. It's like you won't see anyone in the mountains. That's why they told you to go to the mountains. When Henry David Lee got to uh, Salinas, he started a food distribution business and groceries between Kansas City and Denver as he was taking advantage of the newly formed railroad, as we talked about before. And his main business was shipping produce between those two bigger cities in ice-cooled railroad cars, which, as a shout-out to all the East of Eden Steinbeck heads out there, this is probably who Adam Trask was based on in the book. Henry David Lee, specifically? Uh, I believe so, because like, yeah, you know, you've read East of Eden, I would imagine, right? That's a that's a, a fact about you. I'm fairly sure of, even though I have no idea. Oh yeah, no, I've it's I enjoy Steinbeck. I wouldn't say it's as as fervent as other American lit people, but yeah. I mean, most of my understanding of <laughs> the uh, I don't know the Bay Area in the late 1800s, like to early 1900s, is based off of reading Steinbeck, which is fair. I mean, mine is from the book called Barbary Coast, Steinbeck, and Mark Twain's Single Summer. So, mm-hmm. um, the coldest John, winter he ever spent. Yeah, I don't even know if he said that. Was like one of those like ones. I, I have no idea if he actually said that or if that was just a cool quote he got attributed to. Yeah, no, and and also Fonte. Even though, again, I don't know if he was truly representative, but yeah, that was like like ask the dust and all that. It does seem like careers back then were a little easier to describe. <laughs> like when I'm trying to tell people what I do, it's like, all right, how much time do you have? Yeah. Like back then it's like, you know, vegetables, <laughs> people I needed them. I shipped them. Oh, what you do? <laughs> cool. <laughs> Grocer is very easy to immediately grasp. Very different in New York. I'm learning or relearning, mm-hmm. rereading Barber or the Barbary coast prequel gangs of New York. Green grocers were terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. That's why the bill, the butcher, this is a very much a sidebar. Bill the Butcher, William Poole, real person. But uh, there's just like this throwaway line in that book when they're describing uh, the Gotham or the Gothic tenements. It's like a single line amidst a large page where it's just like, infants were often eaten by rats who got to be the size of cats and would invade the tenements. And then the next line was just like, Excuse also, me? The next line, just like there were two alleys on either side is how you entered and a sewer below. And I was like, wait, can we go back to the infants getting eaten by cat sized rats? This is the time period we're talking about though. Like right yeah. in that, right in that time period. Not, I mean, 1889 would have been a little late for those tenements, but like, no, not that late. <laughs> cat sized rats. That really just rolls off the tongue. There was a dude who got like a fearsome, uh, East river pirate who got his legs eaten off by a, rat down by the water like waterfront one night very drunk yeah that's i guess the fear of passing out in uh southern manhattan (laughs) back then was a bit more dire than it is now there were so many fears 
Like cat size rats is definitely top three, I think, for any functioning human. But like, <laughs> it's debatable. I think it's sometimes like it's just like there's a woman who just bit people's ears off and stuck them in a pickle jar. Wow. Yeah. The original Iron Mike. Uh, the author Herbert Asbury calls her a hero. Like, I think it was a non a non judgment term to be honest, but he was just uh-huh. and another hero of the fourth ward. And she, I was just like, wait, so she pickles ears? And it was like, yes, it should give them back if you don't have respect. And it's like, okay. Seems seems like a cool time to be alive. Uh, yeah, it was the time of legends and the time of heroes. Heroes, the age of heroes. Yeah, like Henry David Lee, who could chip uh, lettuce without it going bad, unlike Adam Trask. But he didn't ship lettuce for all that long. As, um, Lee's business went to primarily focusing on jeans and workwear uh, because he couldn't find reliable sources for his own workers, so he just decided to make some for themselves. And uh, their two innovations were the Lee bib overall, which is sort of like what you imagine a normal overall being uh, these days. You know, the one of like the Oshkosh type look. The ones here um, on TikTok. Are their overalls big on TikTok right now? They like overall. Yeah, TikTok's TikTok's big on like ironic, like they're like big on those like weird 80 sunglasses that have no nose bridge where the lens just goes all the way around, you know, multicolored. Oh, I know that. ironic. Uh, yeah, the Lee bib overall was their development in uh, 1911. And then the Lee Union coverall in 1913, um, which was just basically like a jacket sewn into a pair of pants, you know, like a, like a jumpsuit type thing. Um, and both of those, like, they made for themselves, but they were such big hits that Lee decided to stick to making workwear exclusively. Um, and Lee was also one of the earliest users of sanforization, which means the garments didn't need to be shrunk to fit like most other denim at the time. So, like, they were, they like, could stake their claim in, like, the empire of the Midwestern United States, basically from Kansas to, like, the Rocky Mountains, and then, like, out, I'd say almost to, like, Appalachia. Um, was where you could like see the the burgeoning market for Lee jeans and overalls and coveralls and other like work clothing. The Hudson Overall Co. was founded by C.C. Hudson, who had moved from Tennessee to North Carolina to try to get on the emerging textile industry in the American South. And this was like around 1900, a lot of the denim production was moving south from New England because developments in electricity meant that they no longer needed river water power, as we talked about earlier. And they could be placed closer to where cotton was grown in the American South, so you would save on transportation costs. Uh, And Real Heads will also note that Greensboro, North Carolina, was also the home of the Cone Mills White Oak plant, which we will get into much more in a later episode. And Hudson overall, as you guessed it, they made uh, denim overalls. And the story goes that they changed their name from Hudson overall to Bluebell because they were so popular with railroad workers that they gave them a gold railroad bell in appreciation to the factory. Like the uh, C.C. Hudson's like overall factory got a uh, gold bell that they hung like up in the corner to be like, oh, wow, look at how proud we are of making all these clothing for the railroads. Who, was, who gave, like, was like, that like a union gift? I don't know. It's sort of like a, a, a myth, like urban legend type thing. This is one that like, I found a couple references too that was only like, as the story goes. I like the idea that just like railroad workers at large got together to, to gift a bell. 
They're like, we like your pants so much. Here's a big old bell. It's like, and they're like, oh, thanks. We'll, we'll just put that in the corner here. It's like if someone was like, you know, all the teachers bought someone a gift. I'd be like, wait, all the teachers where? <laughs> How many teachers? You know, the teachers. Did any disagree? Uh, was there one uh, guy who like got a pair of Levi's from San Francisco and was like, y'all are full of shit. <laughs> Why are you giving this bell out? I want my dues back. <laughs> uh, I didn't pay for a bell. I paid to, you know, not get starve and get eaten by rats. There's a sinister side to this bell story, though, because after they hung up the bell, uh, all of the fabric dust in the factory started settling on the uh, bell, which turned it blue because, you know, it was all the blue denim. Um, so they started calling themselves Blue Bell because they had this, like, uh, big bell that was covered in blue denim dust, which... Uh, might have been quaint at the time, but like a lot of the people that worked in these factories had horrible respiratory problems because they were just inhaling fabric dust like all day, every day. Um, so a lot of them had asthma and like emphysema and other lung cancers that was called brown lung. Ugh. Have you ever seen that photo of the kids where their hair is like standing straight up and then they were the kids that got hit by lightning? Do you know about this photo? They were two no. brothers. It's like, I think they're the McKinnon brothers or something like that. I don't know. But like, there's this photo of these two kids with these huge grins on their face because their hair is sticking straight up. And then one of them just got goosed by a bolt of lightning like seconds afterwards the photo was taken. And I feel like this is kind of like the the industry equivalent of that. Like, it's like this thing <laughs> that you're pretty excited. You're like, hey, the bell's blue. And like, yeah. meanwhile, your body's like, yo, can we open a window? Yeah, I'm coughing up dryer lint that's, like, thick with blood. <laughs> it's, like, literally how it was. Yeah, I mean, man, everything sounds terrifying in this age. Like, I know I'm really revealing myself as, like, a neurotic Jew every time we do one of these things. But I'm, like, I would have lasted, like, 19 days. Hey, like, the more that I do these things, the more thankful I am for OSHA. This was, like, a thing that I used to begrudge when I was 16 and I worked at a hardware store. And like people would yell at me for uh, doing donuts on the forklift um, of like, oh, I'm going to call OSHA on you. And I'd be like, oh, screw it, old man. I'm going to do donuts. <laughs> but uh, yeah, occupational uh, safety and health administration probably saved like uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of people's lives with shit like this. Just so many like people would lose a hand and they'd be like, Are, is he going to die or can he finish his shift? Mm hmm. Send them back. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Blue Bell, Brown Lung, didn't start operating as Wrangler until after World War II. So we'll get to that later. Sort of to uh, sum up uh, today's episode, you know, we got a uh, United States that is increasingly connected by trains. And denim jeans, as we know them, have gone from coast to coast, from these like niche minor pants to being something that's worn by a variety of working people due to the obvious utility for doing their jobs. But they're still relegated to that category of workwear because jeans weren't cool yet in the popular imagination. But, oh, they were about to be. Check in next week for part six, where we will get into cowboy pants and how jeans started becoming a thing that uh, people that weren't forced to wear them kind of wanted to wear them. Oh, once again, uh, my name is David. I'm Reed. And thank you so much for joining us this far on this uh, ever-extending denim historical journey. 
if you like what you're hearing, uh, maybe drop us a review. It'll help us get that uh, iTunes and Spotify search magic. And if you don't like it, yeah, leave us a review as well. Maybe we can improve. Just don't hurt our feelings, please. Um, other than that, uh, thanks for tuning in and see you next week.